This program was originally posted on the Psychedelic Salon's first-run Patreon feed three months ago. As you know, I'm publishing new Salon 1.0 programs first on Patreon as a way to thank my supporters there. Additionally, for only $1 a month, they can also join me every Monday evening for a live edition of the Salon, where we sometimes jointly interview featured speakers whose conversations I also publish on the podcast from time to time. Now, here is the program from which you heard a preview three months ago. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to begin by reporting that during the month of November, 122 fellow saloners have joined me on this Psychedelic Salon 3.0 podcast, the one that I've made available through my Patreon site. As you all know, uh, all of the Salon 3.0 podcasts will become available on the original Salon RSS feed just three months after they first appear on this new 3.0 feed. And in addition to listening to these podcasts early, my supporters, for only $1 a month, are also invited to the weekly live session that I host on Zoom. Every Monday around noon, I send to each of my supporters on Patreon a personal email with the link for that evening's live salon, which takes place at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Now, from time to time, in addition to myself and a few saloners who are becoming regulars for the live salons, there will also be guests who appear. In fact, last week, my friend Matt Palomary was with us to answer a lot of questions about ayahuasca, and in a week or so, I'll be hosting an expert on ibogaine. In the event that you have some questions about ibogaine, well, you'll be able to ask them directly from an expert yourself. So, I hope to see you there. And to find out more about the live salons, just click the Patreon link at the top of the PsychedelicSalon.com website. Now, before we begin listening to today's Terrence McKenna talk, I have uh, two other announcements. First, as I mentioned last week, tickets are now on sale for the Imagine Convergence, the conference that will take place next March. As you know, some of the headliners that we have heard from here in the salon are going to be there, and they include Dr. Bruce Damer, Dr. Charlie Grobe, and Paul Stamets. This is uh, really going to be an excellent chance to get to know these interesting people on a personal level. Because the conference is limited in size due to the nature of the location for this event, and so it's going to be a much more intimate gathering than is usually found at larger events. And I'll put a link to it in today's program notes. Uh, If you're planning to attend, uh, please let me know. Uh, Some of our other fellow saloners have already told me that they're going to be there, and uh, I hope to meet you there and uh, connect you with a few of the others as well. Now, uh, one other announcement is about the recent psychedelic conference that was held in Estonia on the 21st of September. Happily, uh, they had four cameras that recorded this entire event, and you can watch it online if you want. I'll link to the uh, free trailer that's on YouTube, and uh, there you will hear from several speakers who have been featured here in the salon. Uh, They are Dennis McKenna, Jeremy Narby, Susan Blackmore, and Luis Eduardo Luna. 
Now, one of the more important results of this conference, uh, in my opinion, was that the mainstream media in Estonia gave it a great deal of coverage. And this means that some lonely psychonauts in that land now know that they are not alone after all. And, well, I find that to be really important, having been in that situation myself at one time. By the way, uh, one of the conference organizers uh, for that event is also one of our fellow saloners. And uh, hopefully this conference was successful enough to repeat next year. Because, well, I think it's really important for us all to see how widespread the interest is in psychedelic medicines. In fact, uh, this is something that has become obvious from the live Monday night salons, where we've had saloners join us from New Zealand, England, Russia, Slovenia, Australia, Uruguay, and the Netherlands, among other countries. Like Anonymous, we are everywhere, so expect us. So, uh, now let's get on with the program. Today we rejoin Terence McKenna and a few of his friends one June evening in 1989, almost 30 years ago. And back then, of course, there was a, a lot of hype surrounding the possible major event of some kind that was going to take place in 2012. And, uh, of course, before that was coming the dreaded Y2K calamity. And at the same time that all of this hype was going on, there were also these Terrence McKenna bootleg tapes that were floating around in which he was talking about this idea of his that he called the time wave. Now, if you've been here with me in the salon for a while, you already know my thoughts about this offbeat idea, but no matter what I may think about it, at the time that Terrence was first presenting the time wave to uh, small audiences around the country, well, there were parts of his stories that were extremely seductive. However, uh, since 2012 has come and gone, and you and I at least think we are uh, still here listening to this recording of an old Terrence McKenna tape. <laughs> you remember that old Chris Christofferson line from A Star is Born? Are you a figment of my imagination or am I one of yours? <laughs> but uh, before I sidetrack you to think about that, we'd uh, better get on with today's talk, which will most likely be the last time that I podcast one of his Time Wave presentations. But since this set of talks hasn't been seen on the net before, or I should say heard on the net before, I feel that I, uh, well, I should publish it here just to complete the online record of Terrence McKenna recordings. And even though the uh, time wave actually never made it to theory status, nonetheless, there are some interesting historical commentaries that uh, Terrence makes in this talk, and which I found, uh, well, somewhat thought-provoking. Hopefully you will, too. By the way, uh, as you'll hear in just a moment, while Terrence was giving this talk, he was uh, showing time wave graphs on a computer monitor. But it isn't actually necessary to see the graphics in order to uh, understand what he's pointing out. And uh, while that would not be the case if this was a talk about art, the graphics for this talk, however, are really their only lines that look like the outlines of mountain ranges. And uh, the point of Terence displaying those graphs is simply to show a peak or a valley taking place on the time wave that corresponds with the historical event that he's talking about. Well, <laughs> now you're probably more confused than you were when I started trying to explain that. So all I'm saying is that you don't need the video aids to understand this talk. How's that? <laughs> now, at last you say, <laughs> here is Terrence McKenna who will proceed to give us an overview of the past 50,000 years of human presence on this planet. 
many times today I've used this metaphor about uh, lower level languages mapping higher dimensional spaces. Well, one of the approaches that has driven me in my involvement with psychedelics is the belief that this is a domain of ideas. And so it's very important to me to try and bring something out of those spaces. And I think, you know, in the way that every Jungian patient is supposed to be able to produce a mandala accompanying the individuation process, in the same way every psychedelic voyager who keeps their wits about them should be able to produce a map or a sketch or a diagram of the territory. Well, this which I've been working on um, since 1971 is the most original part of my thing and so I'm sort of shy about absolutely laying it on you because it's also in some sense the most demanding part of my rap intellectually I mean you just have to pay attention and be smart to start with for this to, I think, make sense in the time we have uh, to available. Nevertheless, I'll give uh, it a whirl. The notion is generally this, that um, there is a quality in the world that has previously been left unnoticed and undescribed, especially by science. Science is interested in uh, spin, velocity, momentum, charge, so forth. But a fundamental aspect of reality has been ignored. And I call this fundamental aspect novelty after Alfred North Whitehead's uh, metaphysics as set forth in process and reality. Novelty... Another way of thinking of it is density of connectedness. And what is being said by this idea is that density of connectedness or novelty comes and goes in all situations. It's an ebb and a flow of probability, if you want to think of it that way. In other words, that time is not simply a dimension of pure duration as Newton thought, but that time is actually a topological manifold over which events meander as they find their way to uh, lower energy gradients or more novel states of organization. And this fairly abstract idea, uh, I have been able to construe into a formal notion Formal notion means mathematically formal. That if, uh, if anything, what this idea suffers from is being not too abstruse but too concrete. And it is the notion that density of connectedness, novelty, is something which the universe over long periods of time conserves, but that over short periods of time it appears to be in a state of flux so that 
there is more and more of it as you approach the present moment in time in the life of the universe. There wasn't very much novelty immediately after the Big Bang. There was only cosmic, the chemistry of pure plasmas. Then with cooling, more organization, further cooling, more organization. I mentioned this, this the first night but I didn't explicitly connect it to this idea. Well, this is a mathematical idea. It emerges out of the I Ching, which might seem an unlikely place to seek for a data field from which to launch an a, uh, uh, empirical description of nature. But I submit that it isn't because what the I Ching properly understood represents is a kind of uh, understanding of time based on the evolution of a cultural worldview within a completely different linguistic then than our own, uh, an understanding of time, the subtleness and sophistication of which exceeds our own exceeds our own. And what the basic idea of the I Ching is, well, first of all, let me review for anybody who isn't in, doesn't have in hand the fundamentals. The I Ching is a Chinese system of divination of great age. It uses 64 ideograms, which are called hexagrams, and they are composed of six levels broken or unbroken lines. The sum total of this set of six levels broken unbroken is 64. These 64 ideograms are felt to be symbolic of states of change. And then there are various ways of consulting this as an oracle and a lot of Chinese philosophical speculation has gone into it and so forth and so on. My idea was that the I Ching is a piece of broken machinery, that even as we inherit it at the earliest strata of commentary, which is the early Han dynasty, that it is a broken piece of machinery, the simple coin-tossing oracle or Yarostock oracle that has been used throughout the historical life of China is a late and... Uh, um, syncretic adaptation to the I Ching. What it was before the Han Dynasty, I believe, was a kind of perfected philosophical mathematical system for understanding time, understanding the ebb and flow of this quality which we're calling novelty. Well, you may recall there is this notion in Eastern thought of Tao, Tao is the ebb and flow of some kind of informing spirit which makes things happen or holds them back according to the mysterious inner workings of its laws. So in a way what this is, is this is an effort to mathematically model Tao, to take the statements about Tao contained in, for example, the Tao Te Ching, and to take them as mathematical axioms and then see what kind of a system you get if you carry through with this program of research. For instance, the Tao Te Ching opens with the words, the way that can be told of is not an unvarying way. 
in the Whaley translation. Okay, if the way that can be told of is not an unvarying way, then the way that can be told of is a varying way means it's a wave of some sort. It's describing a stream of variables, so forth and so on. Well, by conserving the intent of these statements about Tao and by studying the internal mathematics that operate inside the King-Wen sequence, and inside that sentence is an hour of excruciating explanation which you will be spared, by doing this... Um, I was able to construe what I at first took to be a calendar. I thought that I was in the process of discovering some kind of Neolithic lunar calendar. But then further reflection led me to realize that what was happening for me was the answer to my prayers and that an idea over months, over years, encountered in dreams and vision and so forth, was uh, slowly surfacing, like being born in my awareness, and that it was, uh, uh, well, as a proud parent, I almost said perfect. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it was elegant. Elegant. It was this peculiar, elegant idea that though it, its outlines were completely unexpected to me, it had the curious quality of answering a lot of my questions. And so what it is, and I'll show it to you in a minute, is it's the idea that a way to model Tao, a way to model the flux of novelty in the world is to treat it as a fractal wave uh, waveform, to write an equation for a recursive fractal curve with certain qualities, which when placed against the historical record will confirm its accuracy by giving a map of the vicissitudes of historical development in time. See what I mean? And, and this wave will have the present positioned in it at some point. And that means that at, a point, at all points to the left of that point will be data points in the future. So this is not only a theory of history, time which has undergone what Whitehead calls the formality of actually occurring, but it is also a theory of the future, time which has not yet undergone the formality of occurring. Well, there are different ways to try and convince somebody that this notion is true or has the chance of a snowball in hell of being true. And the, uh, I'm not going to argue from the I Ching or from the elegance of construction this evening. Instead, I'm going to try and demonstrate its application to modeling history. You see, if we take seriously the notion of mathematical modeling of processes, and this is what chaos theory, dynamics, catastrophe theory, all these things which are, I recognize as psychedelic domains, this is what they're interested in. Well, if you really believe you have a model of process, 
then you have to model human history. Now, there's a problem here that we should deal with right off the bat, which is if you have a wave mechanical theory of time, then a wave is a phenomenon in time of ebb and flow of amplitude that comes to an end. In other words, all waves have what is called a wavelength. And on the largest level, this wave is what's called a soliton, meaning it has only one energy crest in it. So uh, you have to assign an end to the wave. And the end, the way in which you choose the end date for the wave is by fitting historical data against the wave in an effort to see if the historical data where the clots of novelty occur, occur in the low spots of the wave. If you get it so it fits perfectly, then you just simply look at the end of the wave and see what the end date is, and you know then what the end date is. Uh, when we did that, um, the end date emerges as startlingly close. And this is the part of the theory that defies um, the momentum of reason. It's that it seems to, for it to work, it seems to imply that the emergence of the transcendental object out of hyperspace and into three-dimensional history has to happen somewhere around 2012, specifically December 22, 2012. So having told you, you know, the hardest thing you have to swallow about this, uh, let's now take a look at it. Now, the way the game is played, this is software called TimeWave Zero, and it's like a microscope or a telescope. It allows us to look at the wave uh, against any time scale. So if, for instance, we find that we have among ourselves a, a prominent historian of the late Roman period, we can throw the late Roman period up on the screen with the waveform equation for novelty solved and then interview our expert about whether it fits his intuition of when the important turning points, high points, and low points of the late Roman period were. Now, what, what we, have, we have to specify certain parameters. One is, how much time are we going to see on the screen? We can see as much as 135,000 years on one screen, or we can see as little as three days. I've chosen uh, 50,000 years, and I've chosen a zero date, as I told you, of December 22, 2012, and there's a little pointer that points at what is called the date of interest. And just for whimsy's sake, I have chosen as the date of interest today. So then, when the program is activated, an excruciating set of arithmetical computations swings into action. And it used to take me a day to make one of these screens and it involves thousands of calculations any one of which if you botch then you skew the whole thing 
So in spite of the fact that this takes quite a while, uh, it ain't nothing like the old days, let me tell you. What it's telling us up in the upper uh, corner there is that 51.67 millennia are on the screen. The zero date is 12-22-2012. And this is uh, the wave. Ignore the bicoloration. That's something having to do with the transfer to the monitor. Okay, now, how do we interpret this wave? What are we looking at here? Okay, what we're looking at is... Uh, the, a picture of the ebb and flow of novelty over time. When the wave moves downward, novelty is increasing. When the wave moves upward toward the top of the screen, the counterflow to novelty, which Rupert Sheldrake suggested to me I call habit, habit is increasing, or entropy or disconnectedness, or recidivist, or conservative tendencies. So this is a push-pull theory of an underlying wave of Tao that distorts ordinary probabilities either toward the novel or away from the novel depending on temporal variables the temporal variables, something which was always excluded from science. Okay, so how do I interpret this uh, thing in terms of depicting the career of novelty? The purple line points at today. Uh, And clear over here, it's uh, 45,000, nearly 50,000 years ago. Now, this first steep decline into novelty uh, has um, first of all these dates are very broadly determined for things so far back but this is thought to be the height of the Neanderthal radiation the fire using tool using species that preceded us then this second deeper stab into novelty that's quite extreme here uh, occurred about 35,000 years ago. This accords very well with the earliest, uh, with the current estimates of where language emergence seems to have taken place. And as you see, a very deep level of novelty was probed in the aftermath of whatever this breakthrough was. Uh, Then there was again a recidivist conservative movement and then up here at about 18,000 and what this is, friends, and what this is too are glaciations, highly punctated movement of ice southward from the poles of the planet freezing out the migratory access of Africa to the ancient Middle East because these glaciers came as far south as Sidon in Lebanon. So these glaciations show as highly punctated, negative or anti-novel episodes in the situation. What happens here at 18,000 BP is what's called the Magdalenian Revolution. It is... um, the invention of bone antler technology, 
the cave paintings at Lascaux and Altamira, the uh, sudden proliferation of religion, artistic forms, painting, so forth and so on. Well, now, with a command, with one command, we can slash the screen in half and explode the data. And it won't be dramatic at this point, but notice that the... uh, the end point is retreating slightly from the other side. So what we're going to be seeing now is more data about less time as we zero in on the present. It's, in a sense, we're looking at frames of a movie as we fly closer and closer toward the present symbolized as a kind of fractally expanding landscape uh, beneath us. Okay, 25,000 years ago, there's the Magdalenian Revolution. Um, that's Chatal Hyuyuk. The pyramids are there. This, okay, here's what we've got. This is this Magdalenian thing where art, religion, so forth and so on. Then there's a carrying capacity problem. This is this desertification thing that I'm talking about. The partnership paradise is down in here on that sawtoothed edge. That's where uh, the symbiotic relationship with the mushrooms first comes into being. This is where uh, all these forms related to partnership society that have been accumulating in the primate adaptation to the mushrooms and so forth and so on are all brought together. This is where hunting and gathering turns into pastoralism, so forth and so on. Then dryness in the Sahara, cultural disruption, migration. Then the Chatal Hyuyuk episode. I talked about Chatal earlier today, this premature burst of complexity and brilliance. Uh, now with 12 13,000 years on the scale, you can see how sharply the, the theory picks it up. Now, do you understand that what's happening is that this wave is, in my opinion, and you are to judge each yourself, this wave appears to be giving an accurate description of the ebb and flow of novelty into the human world on a scale of millennia. But yet this wave is a, a mathematical object uh, elaborated by myself out of the I Ching. In other words, there is no logical reason why there should be this correspondence. And yet there is. I am suggesting that uh, it's because this is a... Uh, that there is a correspondence between our intellectual organization and the organization of the syntax of our languages, a correspondence with what we call the outer world of space and time, and that this is scripted in at a fairly profound level. Okay, here is the, the breakup of Eden, the, the dryness, then the, the Chatal Hyuyuk deep penetration here, its destruction by the dominator culture that came south is indicated by this upward swing of this thing. And then on this descending slope here, you get 
the great civilizations of early human history in descending order from the top of that little spike down to the bottom you get uh, Sumer, Ur, Chaldea, Babylon and Egypt. Egypt is right in the bottom of this trough. Okay? So what this screen is showing is that all time since the pyramids were built and I, by the way, don't use diddled dating I use real dates. The pyramids were built in 2790 B.C. Sorry, Atlantis fans. Uh, So you see that all time since the building of the Great Pyramid is represented by this little sweep up and this little sweep down and then a little choppiness at the end. And remember, the the purple line is pointing at today. This is 13,000 years. Here's half that. Now, see, we're getting closer and closer to epochs of historical time about which we have considerable amounts of data. I mean, you know, it's one thing to talk about when language appeared, but we're pulling even here with periods of time where we have dense amounts of historical data, and we're going to go right up into the 20th century with this process. To my mind, this is what an extraterrestrial or hyperdimensional being would communicate. This is a hyperdimensional map of the world. It's somebody's way of saying hi. You know, I mean, a very complex somebody, but nevertheless, it's somebody's way of saying hi. Okay, I love this screen. I call this particular place in the wave History's Fractal Mountain. And I may call this book I want to write about this History's Fractal Mountain. You're looking at it. Beyond Mount Analog, uh, this is a mountain to set your sights on climbing. Uh, The Great Pyramid is right down here. We are here. Okay, what's here? Homer. Homer is at the top of history's fractal mountain. In other words, uh, 1100 B.C. Okay, what was the primary turning point there? What happened there that changed this upswing that is characterized by Assyria, the Hittites, the Mitanni, uh, all these wheel chariot, more and more warlike, more and more kingship, even, and even at that, looking back enviously at the grandeur that had been Egypt, what changed up here? Well, it was the Mycenaean pirates laying siege to uh, an opium-addicted late Minoan civilization and conquering it and beginning to import into Greek religion the ecstatic mysterious, mother-based mysteries that become the mysteries of Demeter and Persephone at Eleusis and the other Greek mysteries. In other words, as we've always been taught, the Greeks were the key. And this certainly confirms uh, 19th century thinking on that, that the Greeks broke through to something 
I mean, we might speculate what it was. I think it was realism. That, you know, if you've ever seen the marbles that are displayed in the museum at the Parthenon, you realize this is different than masks and... uh, This is different than, I mean, these people wanted to make marble into flesh. They had an aesthetic that is exactly, uh, so far as we can tell, like the highest expression of our own. Okay, uh, so then there's this turning point, then there's a steep steep descent into novelty on the slope of this thing, at the Greek Renaissance, the Renaissance that included Plato. And this is not, let me say, uh, Indo-European specific. At the very same moment that, uh, that uh, Plato was teaching in Athens, uh, Ezekiel was active in Israel, Mencius and Lao Tzu were active in China. This was a moment of tremendous creativity. Well, then notice that down here, from about 500 AD, there's been a different kind of time. Oscillation around a mean very close to recall that when the line moves down novelty is increasing so since 500 AD there has been uh, oscillation around a mean very close to the maxima of novelty and I maintain that this explains to some degree the obsessive haunted neurotic character of civilization since that time. It's because the transcendental object is, uh, is so eminent that we sense it. Our artists, our prophets, our seers sense this thing. Now, there is an aspect of this that I haven't mentioned, which is because it's fractal, certain parts of the wave are like certain other parts on higher and lower levels so that, for instance, the wave reveals that Nazi Germany, a racial cult, a leader cult, a a bunch of order freaks, has a, in this theory, a geometrical relationship to pharaonic Egypt, leader cult, order freaks, so forth and so on, that the ebb and flow of what we call fashion and fad is under the control of a wave like this. Now here you see from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill. And one reason I mentioned the resonance thing at this point is because you will see this screen again in the future. This screen is describing uh, 3,200 and roughly 30 years. But there is a place in the 20th century where this screen will repeat itself. The turning point in the... You see there are these nested cycles of time of various durations. And one of these cycles begins in 1945. It's the terminal short cycle. It runs from 1945 to 2012. And when you look at that cycle, the topology of it, you see that the, turn, the, the change in that 1945 to 2012 cycle came in 67. So, you know, it perfectly conf- 
affirms the nuttiest political dreams of those of us who went through that period. Looking at this screen as though it were not 3,230 years, but a period from 1967 to 2012, uh, I could tell you that we are then right here, roughly. We have come through a period of steep descent into novelty since 67, punctuated by various recidivist and neo-fascist counterflows. Nevertheless, we're down here where we are beginning to experience this oscillation around the mean very close to the ingression of the transcendental object. And this will go on until 2012. Okay, now we're only seeing 1,614 years from 509 Julian, that's 509 AD, to 2124 AD. It's interesting. This is uh, basically also the period of time from today, roughly, to 2012. So when you look at this, know that the scaling and the valuations could be different, but the topological manifold would stay the same if you were looking at from today to the end of the cycle. Now, this is interesting. It's not shy about prediction as we approach the chaotic, what I call the chaos at the end of history. This is what I said we should have called the weekend. You're looking at it, folks. There's the chaos at the end of history. It's a series of wildly punctuated gyrations as we come down through the last 1,500 years preceding the emergence of the transcendental object. Now I have to crib slightly. At a certain point, it becomes impossible, and if you're interested in accuracy, you have to... Okay, down in the bottom of this thing, this thing, what we have over here is uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. Is just on the screen. In terms of the resonances with the cycle we're living through, the fall of the Roman Empire occurred uh, early last November. Living through the fall of the Roman Empire, we are down in here. We are in, at the beginning of the Dark Ages. This is the beginning of the, uh, this is the beginning of the Dark Ages. This is patristic Christianity is creating a new religion here. Then you get the Dark Ages. Then you get this extremely steep descent. One of the steepest on the graph. It falls coincident, uh, to the life of Muhammad, which is interesting to me because I was surprised that Muhammad got such a, such a steep fall. The steep, you know, one of the great events of human history. Christ is nothing like this. Well, then uh, my New York editor for Lyle Stewart sent me a book that his company publishes called The One Hundred. And it's, a, it's somebody's opinion about who the 100 most important people in human history were. He said, you'll love this. Look at number one. I turned it, Mohammed, number one, in the opinion of not myself, but someone who made a very careful study of this matter and published a book that you can barely lift. 
So, uh, okay, this is the triumph of Islam, a tremendous surge into novelty. Uh, why? Because mathematics, philosophy, science, the preservation of the literature, <coughs> the lost literature of Greece, all of this was in the hands of Islam at a period of time when Europe was a rat-infested hole. I mean, Toledo in Spain had street lighting and, uh, and uh, modern-style sewers at a time when you know, Paris was a muddy village where people dumped their waste in the streets. Okay, going forward, this stab here around 1182, let me see if I can pick it up um, exactly, 1135, okay, this is Bernard of Clairvaux, Adrian IV, Peter Lombard, Thomas Becket, Eleanor of Aquitaine, that's the clue for me. All that other stuff is fine. Crusades, yes, all for that. But Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, participated in a very interesting episode in the history of Western consciousness because, as I'm sure you all know, she was the queen who was the uh, great patron of the troubadours and who encouraged the importation of the ideal of romantic love into the Angevine courts. She, in other words, gave, it was an outburst of goddess consciousness that laid the basis for the later Mariological uh, outbreak that built Chartres. So Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, uh, is a very important figure in the evolution of human consciousness and the troubadours. I don't have time to go into this in a general lecture like this, but this is a very rich subject, the relationship of the Sufis to the troubadours, the way in which at this time Sufi ideas, the legacy of the earlier Islamic breakthrough, are penetrating both southern Bengal and southern France at the same time creating both the heresy of Chaitanya in Bengal and the whole phenomenon of courtly love at the Angevine court of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Okay, so that's there. Uh, this next, and then, you know, Gothic uh, Christianity and all that is represented in a fashion pleasing to me, which is as a consolidating recidivist and conservative movement. Then there is a steep, plunge right there in 1355. Let me, I, let me see how close exactly it is. 1359, 1357. Okay, here's what's going on. First of all, it's a direct hit on one of the most appalling incidents uh, in Western history which is in 1355, one-third of the population of Europe died, consumed by the Black Death. Uh, truly, you know, a civilization-shattering blow. Uh, and aside from that, uh, what was going on? 1355, the actual bottom of the trough occurred in 1359. Uh, what has happened is besides the Black Death, the first phase of the Hundred Year War ended then. Giotto is painting, Meister Eckhart is writing, William of Ockham is formulating his philosophy, Tamerlane, Chaucer, Wycliffe, 
so forth and so on, right there. So this is the full flowering of, uh, of the Middle Ages. What's happening here in this deeper, steeper descent into novelty that begins around uh, 1445, up at the top of this thing is 1445, the printing press is invented. Only 40 years later, we're down at the bottom of this trough, 1492. What has happened? The Italian Renaissance has occurred. Printing has uh, begun to work its tremendous impact on the Western mind. New techniques of navigation have created the possibility of Columbus discovering America. And this has happened in perfect concert, consort, with the fall of this line. I mean, to me, this is eerie. There comes a... I know the argument about how you see pattern everywhere and, you know, I know all this. But but, uh, it doesn't... It only works if the thing is keyed to 12-22-2012. If you move the wave... Not a single one of these correlations that I've pointed out to you works. It just becomes a mishmash. It only works in this alignment. Um, Okie doke. Uh, the Italian Renaissance, the discovery of America, the consolidation in the New World, and then uh, the negative consequences of that colonial thing, the detriment to consciousness, the rise of slavery, so forth and so on. Okay, what's happening at the top of this pinnacle right here is... uh, Let's slice it and I'll look at it. 1740. So the next change that it picks up is what is called the European Enlightenment the next great wave of novelty after the Renaissance. The, the great period of change was uh, 1445 to uh, 1500, then let's call it 1740 to 1800. And it picks these up perfectly. Here, now you'll see... Uh, okay, that's the top, that's 1741 up here. Now, what you get down here on this sawtoothed thing is uh, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and the Napoleonic Restoration. All right here, as a consequence of this outbreak of ideas, scientific techniques, philosophical breakthroughs, and so forth and so on, that happened uh, as a consequence of the European Enlightenment. Then there is uh, the 18th century, I mean, I'm sorry, the 19th century here with the American Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War both appearing as portions of this period of recidivism. Wars are not, in this theory, uh, progressive or novelty-creating. They break apart structure. And we're beginning to see the little fractal mountain of history appear again at the end of the wave because we're closing in on the next level of the fractal. 
now we're just going to see from 1804 to 2006 with the purple line pointing at today. You see, the, the notion is that somehow psychedelics allow us to either see and record these higher dimensional mappings in ways that we can convey or else this is a message this is the characteristic of the message that for me it is this series of condensing metaphors some many of which I've shared with you today but at the core of it it becomes formal and mathematical it is trying to make a statement about the organization of reality that we have completely missed and it's willing to do it in this extremely rigorous and formal way. I mean, whatever you may say about this theory, it isn't fuzzy-wuzzy. I mean, we're going to tell you to the day where to look for the change. These predictions are to the day. I haven't demonstrated this part of the program to you, but you do understand, do you not, that we could pick any point in the wave and blow it up and just see detail, detail, detail. Uh, okay, here's um, the uh, American Civil War, the Franco-Prussian War, then a steep descent here in 1888, uh, then... Uh, and what that is, I'm not sure. I'm not really a historian of the late 19th century. Then a rise, and this pinnacle here, this little pinnacle, is almost exactly 1900. So that from the top of that pinnacle down, this is the career of novelty uh, since uh, 1900. 1933 is at the bottom of the trough. 1967 is at the top of the wave. We are the purple line. Well, it's interesting. I think the wave does give remarkable fit to technological innovation. Uh, but wars, uh, I'm not sure whether it feeds into the culture of the rest of us or whether uh, military technological breakthroughs simply feed into further military technological breakthroughs. I would almost argue that more accurately than anything else, what this thing portrays is uh, the history of te technology and that this may argue that this thing which happens in 2012 is a technological breakthrough. It's like the, the ultimate artifact is what we're trying to build and the ultimate artifact is the human soul we're trying to condense the soul. We have not given up on the alchemical dreams of the 16th century, essentially. Okay, so here you see this. Uh, 1900, the end of the Edwardian thing, descent into novelty, World War I, the 20s, further descent into novelty, 1933, Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany, World War II, is fought down in this trough. Now, the tendency coming out of the post-war period was uh, for everybody to go conservative and hang on to whatever they could. And stasis, the Cold War, a great standoff, a great freezing of the evolution of cultures in a state of a mental state of military siege. You see, what the idea here is, 
is that we are lower dimensional creatures with a great deal of anxiety about the value dark domain that we call the future. This thing, whatever it is, is offering like a map of the future that you don't take on faith. You confirm that it works by seeing that it mapped all previous time with perfect accuracy. And so it is somehow then reasonable to conclude that it can be extrapolated forward. Now here's a beautiful shot of history's fractal mountain. Remember, I, and now you see it, not as Minoan Crete falling to Mycenaean piracy with uh, Plato here and Jesus here and the fall of Rome here, but you see it as 1967, uh, up here and the present down here. This is the period that we have traversed since 1967. That's where the, the switch was thrown that set us into this last cascade. And in a way, a fairly profound way, since 1967, we have been reliving in a rapid and condensed form the themes and concerns that have proceeded from since 1000 BC. In other words, we are acting out in speeded up and condensed forms previous historical epochs. That's why, you know, we're on the brink of a dark age. But the dark age will be over uh, by 1993. Then there is this Mohammed analog and then in 1996, the analogous event related to the discovery of the new world, the Columbus moment comes. And then sometime after the turn of the century, we hit the Italian Renaissance. Sometime after that, uh, around 2009 or so, we hit um, the European Enlightenment. And then very quickly, after 2009, we lived through the entire flowering of industrialism, modern science, the 19th century, the 20th century, and we are sucked into the transdimensional object. This is it. It's like an onion of ever more condensing levels. We are inside the transcendental object at this moment. We call it the 20th century. And we're inside a larger shell of it, which we call human history. But we are going to migrate into more and more realized, densified, compacted, connected uh, expressions of this fractal pattern, which just seems to be the signature of creation in this space-time matrix. As Sogyal Rinpoche says... You understand what I mean? <laughs> you understand what I mean? <laughs> well, maybe. I don't know if I understand what I mean. This does explain why we have such a hard time cognizing what's going on. We're in 500 AD, for God's sake. How much can we be expected to understand? They haven't invented the calculus yet. You know, they haven't invented computers yet. They haven't invented navigation yet. There are no telescopes. We don't know from radio. I mean, we're just uh, 
rummaging around. We're like Macrobius. He lived in 500 AD. He believed that the uh, circumference of a circle was twice its diameter. That's the quality of thought that's going on in our world. He really did. He really did. He wrote it. Well, uh, let's uh, do something slightly different and then I'll take questions. I'm going to change some of the parameters and let's look at uh, the present in a little more detail. Hopefully this will show us the future. Uh, It will show us the present and a little bit of the past and then everything up to the emergence of the transcendental object. At that point, the graph doesn't work anymore because uh, novelty becomes so dense that it can no longer be portrayed in the Cartesian coordinates. It begins to move orthogonal into the dimension that I've been calling hyperspace or the divine imagination. Of hyperspace, the divine imagination, yeah, from William Blake. Okie dokie, okay, um, uh, let's see what's happening, yes, all right. So you see what lies ahead. We are deeper into novelty than we have ever been before. Ahead of us lies a little uh, bump that will be less novel than what we've experienced, but when you think that the Tiananmen Square freakout occurs right in the bottom of this little trough, why enough is enough, then down, then in 92, you see we probe deeper levels of novelty. Then there's a recidivist movement. There's the Mohammed thing uh, in late 95. Uh, these are the real dates. There's the... Uh, uh, there's the new world thing in 2005 and then in 2009 the European Enlightenment and everything since the European Enlightenment has to be crammed in between 2009 and late 2012 we're back here I'll have it so you can we'll get more we'll lose the end of the graph here but see how the graph runs down to zero Where the graph touches zero, that's where novelty soars to infinity. That's where the novelty is maximized. That's the point where the bit goes hyperspatial and the Cartesian coordinates become inadequate to the task of portraying the phase space. That's what we're trying to do, transcend the phase space here. So now we're going to see 15 years uh, from 1985 to 2001, very conveniently. Is this uh, all in your book too, your new book? No, Bantam won't pay big money for this. Uh, I have to sell 100,000 books for them before they'll let me do a book on this subject. No, but this is very dear to my heart. I love this. I just think it's so kinky. It's like... uh, it's like a it's like a psychedelic thing it's like a toy it's as though those jeweled metallic twisting turning things that they were offering to me this is one of them except it's made out of 
ideas. They did understand that the only thing I could take back, that it had to be an idea, that I couldn't bring back a thing, so they gave me an idea. And one of the things I think about these little tykes, these self-transforming elf machines, is, you know, I talked today about how it had the aura of a um, playpen or some kind of reception area for human beings. Well, it has a slightly different, it has another aura. And I talked about how it was like the circus. Well, you know, when you were a kid and you went to the circus, one of the things your parents said to you, if they were like my parents, was, be careful you don't meet a pickpocket. So I've noticed that in the DMT flash, there is this slight concern. It isn't a fear that they will be violent with you or a fear that something truly bad would happen to you, but there is this slight suspicion that these guys are not entirely your friend, that they're too tricky, too zany, their sense of humor too out in front of your own for you to be able to fully trust these guys. Well, I thought, I went into my mind and I meditated, where have I had this feeling before? of you can't trust them, they're probably all right. And then I realized it was in my, uh, my uh, itinerant uh, smuggling days in India. And the, the vibe is that of traders. These guys are sharp. They're there to make a deal. And all this stuff that they pull out and show you, look at this, look at this, these are trade items. These are goods. That's the problem. Too often we go into the psychedelic state and people say you should think of a question. These guys say, I've got questions of my own. You bring me questions. You know, why don't you bring me an idea? Why don't you bring me something I might want to have? I sort of believe that the reason I was given this is because they took something from me. What they took from me was everything I knew about the I Ching. I mean, I can just imagine them turning it over in their hyperdimensional hands and saying, crude, but the workmanship shows a certain sensitivity. Uh, you know, put that up on the shelf. And why don't you give this poor fellow something in return? And they said, well, how about a hyperdimensional map of space-time? I said, good, give him that. So, you know, here it is, fair trade. Uh, <clears throat> okay, here we are, so close to it that it's hard probably for you to see, but the, remember the purple line points at today can you see that the bottom of the trough has already happened? That's the day that they put a million people in Tiananmen Square. It's just 25 days in the past now, but we're already on the recidivist upswing. You can see this period that lies ahead until early 91 is going to be of a different character than the time that we've come through.
Well, we can focus in. Yeah, we could go down to three days. We could get it so you could see hourly fluctuations. Yeah, I should make it clear. I don't think I said this in the theory. The idea is that this stacked hierarchy of vibrations passes through these cycles that are shorter and shorter. We've been looking at the 4,306-year cycle with a little bit about the 67-year cycle. But there's also a 384-day cycle, a 6-day cycle, a 135-minute cycle, and so on down to the range of Planck's constant. This thing is imagine we're imagining the universe as a temporal hologram whose fractal dimensionality matches the contours of this wave. So we're suggesting that time is a kind of very complex interference pattern, standing wave, or resonance pattern, where, previous, where certain times reinforce trends in other times on different levels across a schema of relatedness that is not linear, but related through the topology of this particular manifold. Okay, so here is Tiananmen Square filled with a million people. Here we are. Uh, I can tell you that this upward swing uh, becomes flat on the 30th of June. Then it sort of runs along flat for a couple of weeks or so. Then there's a little descent and then an upward fluctuation and then this... And this all goes through on through 1989 and most of 1990. And then uh, in early 91, a new level of novelty is not only tested, but explored for a long, long time. I mean, this looks like wild stuff down in here. Uh, and then so on, and it proceeds into the future and runs to ground in 2012. Well, this is just... Uh, 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 a demonstration of a um, mathematical effort to take a snapshot of uh, the hyperspatial mind from a different angle than we'd looked at it before. So that's it. Uh, are there questions? Question. Yes, actually, I did just, well, not exactly trial and error, but by intuition. And the funny thing about the end date that I haven't mentioned tonight yet, I think, is this end date is the same end date as the end date of the Mayan calendar. The Mayan calendar is composed of 13 cycles called Bakhtuns. And they're about 500 and some odd years long. And the 13th Bakhtun ends on December 22, 2012. Now, I didn't know that when I fit this wave to this. this the only thing that I have in common with the ancient Mayans is that we both use psilocybin mushrooms for vision. Well, is this then an objective map of a higher dimensional space that they somehow, with their 
linguistic and intellectual equipment were able to find their way to the same conclusion by different means, it seems to me a, a bizarre coincidence. Uh, nevertheless, I can't account for it. I achieved this alignment of the wave uh, without knowledge that that was also the end date of the Mayan calendar. Do you reduce this to a daily situation and you watch it to see? Oh, yes. I can show you uh, just, you know, 30 days or I can print out a month time map for someone or a weekly time map for someone. And, and have you looked back at, say, the last month when all was going on in China and so on and seen Oh, yes. To my jaded view, it's always right. I need help you know, of, of one sort or another, for sure, because to me it appears to work. And, uh, you know, I use objective chronological databases, these reference books that you can buy, like a, a chronologue of history and technology or a, chron a chronology of history, and just look back into all of this. See, I think that... I was, somebody was asking me, how do you teach people about this? And I was saying, you need a, a mnemonic shell. You need a file system of some sort. Well, this is a wonderful filing system. Once you get to know this wave, you know that, you know, the same distance from Charlemagne to Henry Ford as from Amenhotep to Hannibal... And, you know, you're able to see these uh, distance-time relationships. You understand history. It wants us to understand our own history. We are partially amnesic because we don't understand our history. It's a weird kind of ignorance. It's sort of intolerable from the point of view of whatever is looking at us. It thinks we should know our history because... Our history is somehow our present. That's the message here. The past is making the present, not in the good old way that everybody always says that, but in an entirely different way. The past is actually making the present. Yes. So, with this, you can actually foretell the future and that you can say, you don't know what's going to happen, but tomorrow at noon, something is going to happen that's going to be earth That's right. That's right. Does, does that indicate to you, do you get inside into a certain preparedness? Well, the, a certain preparedness which I call, I read it negatively. I say it's the end of anxiety. Yes, because you look ahead and you say, aha, the big changes this year will come in August. The tough time will come in April. Between there and then, it's like this. And then you live through it and it's confirmed for you. So then the next time you make a similar projection, you have greater faith in it. And it's important to notice, this is not a determinism. This does not interfere with free will. This isn't some kind of uh, uh, mathematical predestination trip. It's not saying what will happen. It's only saying what the level of novelty will be that whatever happens fulfills. 
So it's not predicting events, it's predicting levels of novelty in whatever events come to be at that point on a global level. And then there is a way to adapt it to individual lives, to treat individuals, to treat this as an equation for a global environment and to treat each of us as particles within the global environment with our own uh, um, end dates and beginning dates, the sum total of which average out into this contour. See? Pardon me? On an individual level, I'm not... I, I'm not welded to this part of the theory, I'm experimenting with it because it has slightly, to my mind, the aura of hokum about it. But uh, there is a 67-year, 104.25-day cycle. Well, if you take a person's birth date and add 67 years, 104.25 days, and enter that as the end date and then look at their lives, they achieve remarkable satisfaction with this, including myself, although I don't, I don't, it's not in the canon. You know, I don't admit, I don't claim that it does that, but it's fascinating to watch. I mean, sometimes it's very amazing. I mean, somebody will tell you their birth date, and you make the calculation and run the graph, and you say, my God, what happened to you in 1972? And they say, well, I attempted suicide and nearly succeeded, and this and this, and, and you know, it's it's often very right on. This is eerie stuff. Don't think that I am not uh, Dane Rudyard or anybody else coming from those places. I respect astrology because I know nothing about it. But uh, this seems quite strange to me that this works. Whitehead said a wonderful thing. He said... Uh, Understanding is the apperception of pattern as such. And I think this illuminates a lot of what is going on in the psychedelic experience. You look at a situation, you see a pattern, that aids you in understanding the situation. But now if you shift your view and look at the same situation again and see a different pattern, your understanding further deepens. If you shift your viewpoint again and achieve a third pattern, you're l so understanding is the apperception of pattern as such. What we feel comfortable with as understanding, what we call understanding, is nothing more than the apperception of pattern as such. This is why these hallucinations are so absolutely uh, beguiling because we cannot help but perceive them as understanding. You know, we, in gazing upon such complex and self-transforming beauty, we perceive pattern. And the feedback of that into our psychology is a sense of meaning. A sense of meaning. So, uh, the, the, it isn't mysterious the way in which uh, psychedelic plants may have synergized consciousness. They simply allowed 
patterns present to be perceived. And this is what we're constantly in the process of discovering, the patterns already in place that we had overlooked. Yeah. Addictive and compulsive patterns. Yes, well, extrapolating out of what I said today, um, you know, uh, who was it? Uh, Ludwig von Bertalanffy, the guy who invented general systems theory, said uh, human beings are not machines, but in every situation in which they are given the opportunity to behave like machines, they will so behave. So, uh, uh, what I think is going on is this has to do with this broken-up symbiosis in prehistory. In the same way that the children of dysfunctional families are set up to be, are are highly, uh, high probability candidates for addiction, so are all of us, because we are all inheritors of this original dysfunctional relationship to the family, the symbiotic family, the interspecies family that we come out of, which is the human beings, the cattle, and the mushrooms. Only in that triad can we achieve peace of mind. And the disequilibrium of psyche that we feel, having been expelled from that cultural context, leads us to try every single thing we can to assuage our disequilibrium. And so opiates, cocaine, alcohol, all of these things are a frantic effort to restore a feeling that we feel capable of, but that we just can't quite reach it. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, if you're new to the salon and haven't heard Terence's time wave rap before, well, my guess is that based on what he just said about using this formula to predict future events, well, that like me, you wonder how this is much different from using astrology to predict the future. Well, I'm wondering the same thing, because as we know, well, the time wave wasn't any more able to predict the future than is any other such device. And as evidence, I submit that 20 years ago, the most destructive personality in U.S. history wasn't predicted by any oracle that I know of to become president. And uh, if they were any good, it seems to me that uh, President Bone Spurs couldn't be missed as a harbinger of a very destructive period in history the one that we are in fact now living through. (laughs) However, it is novel. I'll give you that. Okay, so now you've heard Terrence's live time wave rap, and to be honest, all of the historical points on the graph do in fact sound significant. But here's the problem that I see with his analysis, and that's the fact that almost every major point in history that he mentions comes from Western civilization. For example, during the time that he selects Eleanor of Aquitaine's reign as a significant point, well, there were also very significant events taking place in Japan and China at the same time, uh, which I think led to even greater historical events than did the troubadours. But uh, hey, that's just my opinion. 
Now, what may be an interesting way to plot history, however, uh, using his time wave idea, would be to do versions of the time wave for different cultures, different periods of their history, like the Japanese, Indian, Persian, Chinese, and so on. Then once these time waves are lined up with the most significant events of those cultures, we could superimpose them and uh, maybe get a better picture of the overall wave of human thought and activities that have taken place on a global scale. Of course, uh, <laughs> I suspect that there are already much better ways of doing this. You know, uh, I have to admit that even though I've discounted Terence's time wave ideas, it still is fun to listen to him talk about it. You know, I've sometimes wondered what his career would have been like if he had never proposed this hypothesis, uh, the one that he called a theory. Now, uh, one of the results, uh, I think, might be that his 2012 approach of the eschaton rap, well, maybe never would have taken place. And let's be honest here, uh, even those of us who took the time wave and his 2012 ideas with a grain of salt, well, uh, we still enjoyed his lectures and having conversations with him. He had such a wonderful mind that, well, at times he could be completely captivating, uh, even while at the same time in the back of our minds we, well, we knew that it was only a new myth that he was creating. Interestingly, uh, many of the other myths that he created are still alive today. But here's another thought. Uh, if you are, like me, old enough to be able to think back to the time when you were a child, and there was no such thing as the Internet, with its unlimited amount of news, information, and entertainment. There was no such thing as a web-enabled phone, or jet airplanes, or self-driving cars, or a space program. If you took one of us from back in the 1940s and instantly time-warped us to where we are today, well, my guess is that we time-travelers could easily buy into Terence's idea that something significant had taken place in 2012 because the world was completely changed. Humans uh, seem much the same, but the physical world has been transformed from the slow-paced farm culture-oriented place that we first knew into what it is today. Maybe there, uh, maybe there really was an important threshold that we crossed six or seven years ago and didn't even notice, because uh, like fish who aren't aware of the water, we are immersed in a period of history that is immensely significant. But it's like water around us, and, well, we should maybe pay better attention to the fact that the times, they are changing. And uh, for anyone who is still working on Terence's time wave idea and the hopes that he can be proven correct about his hunch, I just want to remind you that the time wave is simply a plot of the 64 possible line combinations that result from tossing a coin in an Iron Age Chinese fortune-telling game. <laughs> and uh, now I've probably pissed off a few more friends, but once you skin the tales of ancient mysteries from the idea of the I Ching, what you have is a very old game of prophecy. Now, I do think that the messages given by the hexagrams in the I Ching have significantly more value than the daily newspaper horoscope, but hey, let's call it what it is. It seems to me that there is more than enough mystery in psychedelic experiences without the I Ching and Ouija boards coming into play. But hey, uh, hey, that's just my opinion, and not all of my friends agree with me. So you'll have to figure this one out on your own, as you also have to do with everything else, I should add. As the good Dr. Timothy Leary often said, think for yourself and question authority. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. 
Be well, my friends.